Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Winston Churchill was reported to have said, There is nothing more exhilarating than being shot at and missed. That is, uh, there's a great exhilaration of, of being on the brink of death and, and escaping it. You suppose that was what was at stake when Stephen was uh, was at his very death able to proclaim the gospel and say to God, forgive them for, uh, you know, same idea as Jesus, kind of, they know not what they do. Or the, the boldness that Paul had when he would take this unwanted message of the gospel around to throughout the ends of the earth and risk his very life for the sake of that gospel. Do you think that was what was at stake because he just liked the exhilaration of being on the brink of death and being able to escape it? How about John Huss when he failed to recant of his belief and had to be burned at the stake? His belief as Jesus uh, being the Messiah. And Jim Elliot going to the Aka Indians. Was That was what it was at stake, that he liked the exhilaration of being on the, on the edge of death and escaping it. Was it just because these men were adventurous men? What made them such men as they were? I mean, I think we would all have to say that they were great men of of faith. They had faith in the true and living God. Um, And I think ultimately it is that they have a hope in the life to come. You see, for the unbeliever, death is a primary fear, if not the greatest fear for them. But that's not the greatest fear for us as believers, is it? Death is certainly fearful, but it's not the greatest of our fears. We, we can happily take risks for the sake of God's mission because we are confident in the re- resurrection of our life that there's something good in the next life. Where Paul could say something like this, if I go on living, it is a benefit for you, but if I die, that's a gain for me. How can we have such confidence in the face of the grimmest of human realities, death? How can we have confidence in the face of death? And I think the answer to that is found here in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. Chapter 4, verse 13. This is the Word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The main command here is found in verse 18. Comfort one another with these words. And so the the point of this text is that Christians should encourage one another regarding dead believers. Christians should encourage one another regarding dead believers. Now, first we need to see the purpose of Paul's instruction. 
That is the purpose of this hope that he's going to give to them. And then the basis for that hope in verses 14 and 17. And then the response by believers to this hope. So purpose, basis, and, and uh, response. So let's look first at the purpose of our hope, purpose of Paul's instruction in verse 13. We do not, do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The purpose of Paul explaining this to them was to give hope to the believers here in Thessalonica. He wanted to clarify to them what was going to happen to dead believers. That's why he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, our translation here, the New American Standard, translates it uninformed, and I think that's probably a good translation. The NIV and ESV also do that. Um, the King James Version translates it ignorant as if they know nothing about the end times or they know nothing about life after death. But I don't think that's the point here. I think rather it's not an ignorance, but rather a misunderstanding of what they know. They've learned these things from Paul, but they don't quite comprehend how they all fit together. And so they need to be informed. They need to, be, uh, they need to understand these things. And apparently the sentiment in that time was all these great things are going to happen to those uh, to, to those believers who are around when Christ raptures, raptures His church. They knew about the rapture, but they didn't understand. But what about these people who die before that time? Are they going to miss out on all those? Uh, on all those blessings? Do they miss out on the judgment seat of Christ where all these rewards are given out because they died early? What's going to happen to my my believing loved one who has died? Do they miss the marriage supper of the Lamb? Are they not a part of, uh, of Christ's bride there? Notice the object of their concern in verse 13. Uh, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. We understand the word sleep throughout this passage to mean what? That. Okay, turn to John chapter 11. I'll show you another example of this. In fact, it's not just here in the Gospels, but Paul talks about sleep as death. Um, so turn to John 11, and I'll just mention a couple others. 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says, Some of you are sick, and some of you are even sleeping. That is not that you're, you know, you, you just passed out right now and you, you need to wake up, but that some of you are dead because of your sin of of miss, miss or abusing the Lord's Supper. You're not handling it properly. Jesus in Matthew 9 was at the house of Jairus whose daughter was dead. And, and when He came to the house, He goes in and He says, she's not dead, but she's asleep. Okay, And the idea is there is that this wasn't going to result in final death. When Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7, he prayed that God would forgive his attackers. And then the text says, having said this, he fell asleep. Okay, and so we're going to see an example here again in John, also I should say, in chapter 11, John chapter 11, verse 11. Um, they find out that Lazarus is sick and Jesus stays a little bit longer. This, verse 11, this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awake him out of the sleep. So at this point, Lazarus has died. They were, they were away from Jerusalem. And away from um, Bethany there, and and instead of going to Lazarus and healing him before he died, 
Jesus stayed where he was for a little bit longer and allowed Lazarus to die. And then he goes back uh, after that. And so this is what happens. He calls it sleep there in verse 11. Then look at verse 12. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, then he'll recover. What do they think he's talking about? Literal sleep, right? And uh, Jesus said, uh, John gives us some good commentary here in verse 13. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. Okay, so, so there you go. There's, um, this will help us as we turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This, this sleep is a great way to describe death for a believer, isn't it? Because the thing about sleep is it always comes to an end, doesn't it? We hate that in the morning. I was enjoying that. But when we sleep, our body doesn't stop existing, does it? No, it continues to exist. And when we sleep, we wake up. And that's, that's what death is like for a believer. We don't stop existing. And... Uh, and because we sleep in death, we will wake up in resurrection. That's the analogy. Okay, so this is a great euphemism for death, that, that our bodies will one day rejoin our spirits, our, our souls in heaven. And that's why we can say with Paul at the end of the great chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul's talking about the resurrection of bodies, where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory? You have no victory over me. Because my body is going to be resurrected. That's what that whole passage is talking about, 1 Corinthians 15. It's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. So where is your death? Or where is your sting, O death? Where is your victory, O grave? It doesn't scare me, is the idea. You see, because even death can't separate me from the love of Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39. There's nothing in this world in this universe no power nothing can separate from me from the love of Christ not life not death that's that's the what the text says there in Romans 8 now i need to clarify here that this is not the way it is for every single death in our world right this is only talking about death of the believer you understand that for an unbeliever there is a sting in death and death does have a victory over them. And the reason I know that Paul is talking about believers who die is because of verse 16. Look down there with me. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Okay, so we're talking about believers here throughout this passage. So don't think, okay, I can have hope. Because I'm a believer, I can have hope in everybody's death. Now, only in the death of believers can you have hope that that they will enjoy the blessings of all that all believers will enjoy in this age, and that is the blessings of being with Christ forevermore. So he writes to them to to clarify a misunderstanding. I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who fall asleep, and we could add in Jesus, in Christ. But he also wants to provide hope for them. Look at the end of verse 13. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Okay, who wants to provide hope for them? Paul is not condemning grief. He's not saying, okay, there's no reason for you to grieve when someone dies. But rather he's saying, don't grieve like unbelievers. I want you to have hope that they don't have. When unbelievers lose unbelieving loved ones, 
there's nothing for them to look forward to in the afterlife. And in the afterlife, and therefore, as the text says, they have no hope. It's not a good thing when death takes one of their loved ones. But for us, we recognize that it is a good thing that they're with Christ. The battle is done. They've won. They've overcome, as Revelation and First John talk about. Okay, so to provide hope. So why should they not grieve in this way? Why should we as believers not grieve as those who have no hope? And the answer comes in verses 14 through 17. The basis for our hope is the second coming of Christ. The basis for our hope is the second coming of Christ. Uh, first, we see the foundation for the second coming, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection, verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Okay, so here's why we know that we can have hope in our death and in the death of our believing loved ones, and that is because Christ died and was raised. He's referred to in the Scriptures as the first, fruit, first fruits of our resurrection. I think that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I was mentioning earlier. The reason that we can have hope is because of Him. Notice the first word there in verse 14. For... You know, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, therefore we can have hope that that we will be. Look at the last part of the verse. Even so, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Don't you love that word there, will? He doesn't say He could bring you to life. He may, He might. There's a possibility. But no, He will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus died... And if he was raised, the idea is there is he did, okay, since since Jesus died and he was raised, we will, when we die, be raised with him. There's no question about our resurrection because we've already recognized through the revelation of Scripture that Christ has been raised. And he has broken the chains of sin and death. So we don't have to fear death because we know that with His resurrection, we will also conquer death through Him. So just as Christ was raised, so we will also be raised. So the foundation of the second coming is the gospel of Christ. And then it's revealed to us in verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. Okay, by the word of the Lord. This has been revealed to us. Now, Paul is about to say, something, let's read the end of the verse, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, Paul could be referring to a direct quotation from Jesus where Jesus says something like the end of verse 15, those who are alive and remain will not precede me. But we don't have any record of that, so it's not that. Um, It could be an allusion to one of Jesus' teachings, so just as our Lord had taught us about the rapture and how those who fall asleep will, um, will precede, come first before those who are alive, we don't have any record of that either, of Jesus saying that. Um, obviously, Jesus says that I'll go and prepare a place for you. Where's that found? John 14. Good. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. It could also be a direct revelation from Christ to Paul. 
so that it, it is now, he calls it here in verse 15, uh, the Word of the Lord. Just as the Word of the Lord came to me, those who are dead in Christ will, will rise first, and then we who are alive will follow. But more likely, it was a statement that was made by Jesus, but that went unrecorded. Do you think there are any statements by Jesus that went unrecorded? Okay. Why do we know that? Yeah, John twenty one twenty five. John says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books in which they were written. So we know there are unrecorded events in Jesus' life and sayings in Jesus' life that weren't recorded for us in Scripture. Like Acts chapter 20, verse 35, where it says, The Lord said it is more blessed to give than to what? To receive. That's not recorded anywhere in the Gospels. And yet Christ said it. And so we know that there are some unrecorded things in the Scripture. So apparently that's what Paul is referring to. Something that the Lord had taught, but hadn't been inscripturated. The end of verse 15, we see the participants in the second coming of Christ. We can have hope because we will be a part of it. Look at the second part of verse 15 again. By the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So there are two categories of people, two categories of believers. One is those of us who are alive and remain. Paul is saying, using the we here, he's using a a first-person plural saying, Christ could very well come back in my lifetime. Paul believed that, that Christ could come back in, in his lifetime. And he very well could have. But in addition, I think this is referring to those who will be, I mean, obviously all subsequent Christians can take this as a promise, that when Christ comes, those who are alive and are in Christ will be raised to be with Christ, but they won't proceed. Notice the second category of believers, those who have fallen asleep. We've already said who those are, right? That is, the order of the resurrection for church-age believers is this. Dead believers first and living believers second. Right? That's what this verse tells us. That the graves will be emptied of all believers who have trusted in Christ. Okay, That is, from the time of Pentecost until the time of the rapture, Christ's bride, the church, they will be raised at that time. And they will be the first to be raised and then us those of us who are alive and remain if, if we are when Christ actually comes. So those, those are the participants of the resurrection, the second coming of Christ. This is actually a procession. I, I should be more careful here in the second coming of Christ. This, this precedes the second, the second coming of Christ technically is when He touches down on the ground, which happens uh, following the tribulation. Okay, the rapture is the very next thing to happen on the prophetic calendar. Then seven years of tribulation where Christ will be with His bride in heaven and join the marriage supper of the Lamb and we'll, we'll probably at that time have the judgment seat of Christ some, sometime in there. And then at the end of that, then He will come down and touch down on the Mount of Olives and He will act as judge over all the earth. Okay, So that's technically His second coming, but if we want to you know, uh, broaden it to include the rapture, then we wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be wrong in doing that. Alright, so the content of this rapture, verses 16 and 17. How, how, how is this going to look? What is this going to look like? 
Okay, Paul's trying to help the Thessalonians understand what it's going to look like when Christ returns or even what it's going to sound like. And that's what he does in verses 16 and 17. He says that the Lord, uh, for the Lord Himself, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. I love the wording of the first part of verse 16. The Lord, what? Himself. You know, he could very easily have set up his plan so that he could send a representative. Like any king could do, right? He could just send a representative to go get his subjects and bring them to his home. He could go send somebody else to bring his bride to him, send an angel. But he's coming himself to meet us. He doesn't say, you know, Michael, my angel, go get them and bring them back. This is very important to him. That's how, that tells you how important it is to him. That he's coming himself to do this. And he comes from heaven, the text says. And notice the manner of the Lord's return. It is with three things. One, a loud command. Two, a voice of the archangel. And three, the sound of a trumpet. These are the sounds that we're going to hear before the coming of our Lord. First, a loud command. This is probably from the Lord himself, although we can't be sure because the text doesn't clearly say. This is probably the Lord Himself calling His people home. Kind of like, I I imagine it to be like what He did with Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Okay, Get up from the grave. And perhaps He's doing that to all the dead believers who are in the graves. And uh, so we have a loud command. Followed by the voice of the archangel. We don't know who exactly this is. There's only one archangel that's mentioned by name in Scripture and His name is Michael. Uh, But there very well could be more than one archangel. Michael seems to be in charge of the Jews. If you go to Daniel chapter, um, I think it's 10 verse 13. Michael's talked about in that way. Um, Revelation chapter 12 says that he's the one that's battling against Satan in heaven for the sake of the Jews. And uh, so very well, uh, he, he could be in charge of the Jews. And then you could have another archangel who's over who's over some other groups of people and so on. Not clear there, but, but anyway, we'll hear a voice of the archangel. And then a sound of the trumpet. This is not you know, some musical prelude like trumpets are sometimes used today. Um, it's not for the sake of judgment like it would be used in the tribulation. Remember the, the seven uh, trumpet judgments? Um, but rather, it's the announcement of the arrival of the king. Okay, like a fanfare. Or that's how trumpets would be used prior to battle, right? They'd blow the trumpet and say, here we come. And, uh, or, or let's go, let's go into battle, it's time to go. And that's, that's the idea here, that the trumpet will precede the coming of the Lord. So when you hear the command of the Lord, apparently, the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet, it's time to go. And so will you ever be with the Lord, as we'll see here in just a second. Again, the order is given for us again in verse um, 17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So after the dead are raised, the end of verse 16, then those who are alive and remain will also join them in the clouds. Notice uh, there in the middle of the verse, verse 17, in, in the clouds. This should not be surprising that this is not going to be Jesus coming back 
and touching down, as I mentioned earlier, touching down on the earth. Rather, He's going to meet us in the air. Acts 1.11, the angels told the believers, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from heaven, from you into heaven will come just in the same way as you watched Him go. So just as He ascended into heaven, so He's going to descend from heaven. That's, what's, that's consistent with what Paul is saying. And how did He go into heaven? Well, Acts 1.9 tells us that it was in the clouds that the clouds carried him up into heaven, so apparently he's going to be carried back down in the clouds, and that's where we will meet him, whether we are dead or alive uh, prior to that. The result of the second coming is found in verse 17, and that is the, the second part, meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The continual dwelling of believers with Christ. This is the time where all of Christ's church will receive their glorified bodies. Okay, Now, this is not including Old Testament saints. They will receive theirs at the beginning of the millennium. This is referring to New Testament, that is, church-age believers, when they will receive their glorified bodies. That is, when, when God will resurrect your body from the grave if you have died, or where He will somehow transform your current living body into a resurrected body, that will be the time in which it happens at the rapture. And from that point on, you will never be separated from the Lord again. There will not be a time when you feel as if He is far away or if the things of this world are crushing in on you and you have the feeling like Job had that God was far out. You will never have that feeling again because you will forever be with the Lord. So what is our response? What should we do with this? Verse 18 gives us the command of the text. Okay, He gives some doctrine here in verses 13 through 17, and then He gives us the command. What, 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 what should we do? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, So it's that simple. Encourage one another. Use. Let me just make it simple. Use the doctrine of the rapture to encourage each other. All of us have experienced the death of a loved one, but... But despite the difficulty of the situation, we can be comforted that those who are in Christ that have died, that we will see them again. And with our proper understanding of the rapture, we can comfort one another with the loss of their believing loved ones. Think about the contrast here between your hope in the life to come and an unbeliever's lack of hope. There was an unsaved woman from from the second century, and her name was Irene. And she said the following to her bereaved friends. I was so grieved regarding the loss of our loved one, and I shed many tears. I grieved in every way I could think, but still, there is nothing one can do in the face of such trouble. So I leave you to comfort yourselves. Farewell. There's no hope in there, is it? Have you ever been around an unbeliever who has lost a loved one and their grief is uncontrollable. Now, we have grief, but our grief is coupled with hope. It's it's a mixture of feelings because we know what is to, to come of our believing loved ones. So contrast that attitude of Irene from the second century with the attitude of those who have hope for their departed believing loved ones. We shouldn't believe, we, we shouldn't grieve like them. Because we can be sure that Christ will return for us and for those who believe, those believers who have died. 
And to that end, we should encourage them and, and, and be encouraged regarding this reunion of all believers at the coming of our Lord. Listen to this description of a Christian funeral from the same time period. If any, this is uh, Aristides apparently wrote this down. He says, If any righteous man among them, speaking of believers, if any righteous man among them passes from the world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God. And they escort the body as if he were setting out from one place to another. How can believers have hope? in the face of the grimmest of realities, death is because they have hope in the life to come. We can have joy even at a time when it's marked by tragedy and even grief. So let me uh, just leave you with two points of application from this text. Okay, number one, take joy in the rapture of Christ's church. Take joy in the doctrine of the rapture. And when we think of the rapture, we often think of, you know, the driverless cars and the planes crashing and all the various tragedies that are going to happen for those who are still here on the earth. But when we do that, when we think of the rapture in that way, we're actually thinking about the wrong thing. I mean, it would be the equivalent of a groom picturing his bride coming down the aisle with a ball and chain dragging behind her. You know, that's not, what, that's not what the wedding ceremony is about. It's about picturing her in all of her beauty. And that's how we should picture the rapture, not with all the, oh, the terrible tragedies that are going to happen to those who are left behind. No. We should be thinking of it like, uh, you know, we should picture a king reuniting himself with his subjects who have been long lost, have been far away country, and they come back to their rightful uh, land. We should picture it like a groom standing at the front of the church watching his bride come down the aisle. That's the rapture. It's where Christ and His bride are going to be united. And unlike a sinfully human marriage, this marriage of Christ to His bride will be perfect and sweet and full of unending joy. That's the rapture. That's what we should be thinking about when we think about the end times. Application number two, Christ died so that we wouldn't have to. Christ died so that we wouldn't have to. I want you to look back at verse 14 one more time. And notice what Christ's death is referred to. Remember what ours was referred to as? Sleep, right? Just temporary and it, it, you know, we still remain in existence during that time, and eventually we will awake. But notice what Christ is, Christ's death is referred to. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died, nowhere in Scripture that I'm aware of is Jesus' death ever referred to as sleep, but rather that He died. Do you see what's going on here? We wouldn't call Jesus' death sleep because He actually died. You see, death is... It does involve separation. And there is a sense in which we do die because our bodies have been separated from our spirits, right? So there is a separation. We're not full. We're not whole at that time until we receive our glorified bodies. But Jesus didn't sleep like we sleep in death. He actually died. He was separated from God for 
those three hours on the cross when God turned His back on His Son. He bore the punishment of our sin and He died in the fullest sense, bearing the eternal weight of our sin. But we don't die that way, do we? We only fall asleep in Jesus. That is, we go from this life, think about this, without dying. You might be thinking, wait a second, we go from this life without dying only if we're raptured, right? And that's true. We do go from this life without dying when we're raptured. But we also don't experience the full sense of death because when we die, we go from life to life. Do you see? We don't feel the full effects of death or separation. We only experience a minor effect of being separated from our body for a short time. And so we can call it, with Paul, sleep. We're going to lie down for a little while and we know we're going to wake up in resurrection. Jesus bore the full measure of death's blow so that we could sleep. And so that we could say with Paul, Oh death, where's your sting? Oh grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the hope of the life to come. We don't have to fear death like those who have no hope because we know that those who, who are alive and remain will not precede those who fall asleep. So those who have died in Christ will be raised in life. Their, their bodies will rejoin their immaterial beings. And so those who are alive will also be granted a a transformed, glorified body. And so we will ever be with the Lord. Never again to be separated. Never to feel the weight of sin again or the consequences that come from it. Never to feel the curse of this earth. But to enjoy the pleasures of Your presence forevermore. And we pray that You would help us to have hope in our future, but also in the hope of uh, hope for the believers who have died and who have gone on before us. May You help us to encourage one another with these words as we have been commanded to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.